Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. Today, my guest is acclaimed filmmaker and Academy Award nominee, Ava DuVernay. You may know her as the director of Selma, Disney's A Wrinkle in Time, or the criminal justice documentary, 13th. Her latest film is called Origin, an adaptation of the book Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson, whom I spoke to on Sway in 2021. Wilkerson's book is about invisible systems that rank humanity into arbitrary hierarchies. She connects the violent racism of the Jim Crow South to anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany and to India's caste system, which cruelly relegates the Dalit people as untouchables. Cast was a number one New York Times bestseller in 2020, though it languished on DuVernay's nightstand until Oprah, yes, that Oprah, finally convinced her just to get into it. She did, and in September 2023, Origin premiered at the Venice Film Festival. DuVernay was the first African-American woman to have a film premiere in the competition at the festival, and it got a standing ovation that lasted over eight minutes. I thought it was an important and, in these fraught times, necessary feat of filmmaking. And DuVernay pulled it off while sidestepping funding from any major Hollywood studio. Obviously, we'll discuss it all. But first, our question of the week comes from journalist Baratunde Thurston. Hey, hey, this is Baratunde Thurston, host of America Outdoors on PBS, the How to Citizen podcast, and a writer at Puck. And my real question is, what's up, Ava? <laughs> how are you looking so good when the world is looking so bad? I mean, I just don't understand how you're keeping it together so much as things fall apart. Legitimately, I want to congratulate you on all your work, especially Origin, and thank you for bringing these stories to light and to life. And I want to ask you about your belief and your faith in the human capacity to change. Because so many of the stories you're telling, especially this latest set of stories in Origin, or about revealing some deep intransigence in the human condition, commitments to discrimination, to systems of hierarchy and unfairness. And as you wrestle with these and dive into these ideas, where do you stand on our capacity to not just recognize these systems, but to alter them for the better? Thank you. Good one, B. And now on to Ava DuVernay.
Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what could otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Support for On with Kara Sushir comes from Babbel. Our phones have gotten pretty good at translating speech on the fly. If you're traveling to a new country and you'd like to order a chicken sandwich with pickles, an app will probably see you through. But what if you want to chat with your server about the neighborhood or other dishes on the menu or your love of pickles? Real conversations with real people don't lend themselves to translation apps. Genuine connection requires a genuine grasp of the language, and that's something Babbel can offer. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with lessons created by real people for real conversations. Babbel doesn't rely on artificial intelligence to build its 10-minute lessons. Instead, they're handcrafted by more than 200 language experts focused on teaching phrases and vocabulary you'll actually need to communicate. I really like it. I'm using Babbel, and I've been able to use it here in Argentina where I'm visiting my son, Louis. It's a really efficient way to learn a language. I do them very quick. It's 10 minutes. It's very user-friendly. Lots of pictures. I was never good at languages, and I'm really enjoying using the Babbel app. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, you can get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash swisher. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash swisher, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Swisher. And you know how to spell that. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome, Ava. Um, Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So I want to begin with a clip from the film. This is where the main character, Isabel, uh, played by impeccably by Ingenue Ellis Taylor, is describing the thesis of the book she's working on with her cousin. Uh, they've been uh, talking about slavery, and then Isabel brings up Nazi Germany. Let's hear it. Okay, do you think that, that Jews are, are white? Definitely. The majority are. But the same thing happened to Jews in Germany during the Holocaust. The Nazis wanted to create an all-white republic, but they hated, they hated the Jews. So they said, how do we make the Jews not white? So they put them at the bottom of the hierarchy. 
They said that they were greedy. They said that they were dishonest. They blamed them for Germany losing the First World War. They blamed them for everything bad that happened in Germany. They were dogs, kill them, gas them, wipe them out. The Jews and the Nazis were the same color. We have to consider oppression in a way that does not centralize race. We do it here in America, yes, because racism is all we know. But these containers, the Dalits in India, Jewish people in Germany, uh, black folks in America, all these containers have something in common. Race is not one of them. It's caste. You're doing a ton of exposition and explanation there, and it's a great way to do it by her explaining it in simple language, which her, her cousin asks her to. I, I want to talk about the language here, and there's the word container. Um, it me- immediately joins these ideas in a way that allows a discussion that doesn't immediately devolve. And there's also the word cast, um, but you didn't call the movie cast. You chose a different word that appears in Wilkerson's subtitle, Origin. Talk about both these words and why you use them this way. Well, yes, I mean, origin, I, I couldn't call the, the, the film cast because it's not an ad, a straight adaptation of the book. It's about mm-hmm. the woman writing the book cast. And so right. it's a nod to the subheader and as a, you know, a real focus on what we're trying to say, let's look at the root of this, mm-hmm. um, origin felt like an app title. Um, in terms of using uh, the word containers, it's one of the ways in which Isabel Wilkerson actually um, explained it to me personally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remembered hearing the word and thinking, oh, that that helps me organize it in my mind in a certain way. And I think one of the things that Isabel Wilkerson does so beautifully in her work, whether it's the warmth of other sons, whether in her in her writing as a journalist or in cast, is she is able to explain these large, you know, yeah, complex issues in a thousand different ways, and one of them you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. That's really mm-hmm. what cast is. She mm-hmm. is explaining it this way. She's sharing it with you this way. I mean, 99 different ways to come at the subject. And um, and the hope is that one of them is your aha moment. Right. And so um, and so that was an aha moment for me. And that containers conversation really, um, really struck a chord with me. So you you decided this needed to be a scripted narrative instead of a documentary. You have a lot of experience in that. Um, and you've worked in a lot of... Um, genres, biography, historic fiction, documentaries, series. What was the lesson in making this film uh, that you would share, say, with an inspiring filmmaker or storyteller, especially someone who's drawn to more complex stories, including so-called unadaptable ones? I I was really curious how you're going to adapt this book, Uh, because it is, it's a a weighty book. Uh, My advice would be to step outside of the boxes and step outside Mm -hmm. of the, of the three act structure, step outside of any uh, preconceived notion about how the art gets made. And I think that is something that I really needed to do. It was a two year Mm -hmm. process writing the screenplay about nine months in, I had to completely reverse course and free myself of the thing that was holding me back, which was, this is not the way to do this, right? Mm-hmm. This should be done this way. This needs a clear antagonist, a villain. Well, this mm-hmm. one doesn't have a clear antagonist. It doesn't. It doesn't have a standard three-act structure. It is historical, it is contemporary, and it is surreal. There are mm-hmm. moments that do not live in the real world. It crisscrosses time and space. We're leapfrogging across continents and going to different seven different time periods. Mm-hmm. That's not um, anything that anyone told me I should, could, or would do. 
And yet uh, my advice to, to aspiring artists or screenwriters is to do it anyway. And that's what this, this project really taught me. So one of the ways you've done this is weaving into Isabel uh, Wilkerson's own personal journey. Um, when she was writing Cast, her husband suddenly died soon after her uh, soon after her mother. Talk about the choice to include her as the main character. Um, and you've said when you first read it, you had just experienced your own personal loss. Um, and you depict Isabel's losses in the film in heartbreaking scene where she's lying in a bed of autumn leaves. Um, and, and use a lot of close-ups um, to do that, which I found really uh, moving. Talk about why you picked her as the vehicle and, and the use of imagery in your own um, experience with grief. Well, I needed a main character, and she's fascinating. She's a mm -hmm. superhero. She is a, a heroic figure in the idea that someone can walk through challenge and obstacle and reach a destination in triumph. Uh, she walked through the loss of family members in a six-month period as she was leading up to the writing of the book and was able to finish that book. Mm -hmm. And just that intellectual journey, that bravery, that um, ability to stand up in the midst of the void of, of, of grief and darkness is something that I find very inspiring. Mm -hmm. And so she's the perfect kind of, of lead character for a screenwriter and a director. Mm -hmm. uh, and rendering the images, certainly I pulled from, as any 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 creative does, uh, my own well of experience and emotion and memory uh, to to create and to paint pictures and to tell the story. And um, you know, it, it feels like uh, you know it it all coalesced into a, a project that you know said exactly what I wanted to say mm -hmm. and um, looks exactly the way I wanted it to look. So explain the leaves and the close-ups. It was really, it was, and, and your own experience with grief during, when you first read it. Well, you know what? I, I You know, on any given day, grief hits you in different ways. So today mm -hmm. I, I'm not feeling in a place to kind of delve into my own grief. Okay. I will All tell right. you that I, thank you for uh, respectfully allowing me to answer in that way. I will say that I, um, uh, the, the, the images that are rendered on screen as it relates to, uh, the characters in grief uh, are ones that uh, I've experienced and that I constructed and designed in ways that were deeply meaningful to me. And, mm -hmm. and I hope the sharing of them um, connects people, um, you know, in a, in a certain way to their own to their own. Emotion. Yeah, you you really do enter the person with the close ups. It's really uh, effective in that way. But there's also a lot of love stories um, in this movie, I think. What, what's your, was there a favorite of yours or were you thinking about the idea of a love story in this? Yeah, there are 17 love stories in the movie. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I challenge people and invite people to find them as you watch. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, a love story is, is, is an expression of, of love, affection, adoration between two people and or more. And, uh, and there are just beautiful instances. One of the things that I really love to do after Q and A's for this movie is ask mm -hmm. people to call out the love stories. And I've heard many that I didn't even think about. Um, oh, really? And that's why my tally gets higher. Uh -huh. You know, when I first made it, I said, you know, there are 12 solid love stories in this, but I've added five more because over the, the course of screenings around the country, you know, I'll hear something and I'll be like, wow, uh -huh. I never saw that. I can't tell you, there's really no greater joy than people finding things, seeing things, making connections at work uh -huh. that I've made that I didn't know was there. Right. What's the most surprising love story discovery someone told you? Um, I gosh, I can't. Uh, I can't. 
Uh, one, one, one person had talked about the, the love story between the two uh, manual scavengers. So there's a point where you see two men who are performing the demeaning task of manual scavenging in India. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a moment of tenderness between them, of friendship, mm-hmm. of genuine care, concern, love. Mm-hmm. And this person uh, categorized that as one of the love stories in a way that really just made my my heart uh, warm. Did, and did you, uh, they, but, I'm sorry, did you have one? Go ahead, keep going. Sorry, apologies. It's okay. Um yeah, so that was one of the ones that was unexpected, and all of them. I mean, it's my it's my film, so I, I don't put anything in the in the script, and I don't put point my camera at anything that I'm not completely in love with. Every scene, every line has to earn its keep and mm-hmm. be something that fascinates me and that I love. So that's my barometer for making movies. So uh, I can't pick just one. Okay, I picked the boys, the young boys at the pool with each other. Okay, outright, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful sequence. Uh, all of them together uh-huh. you know yeah. that was yeah. i have you know i have kids i just can't imagine the kids having to be more adult than the adults which is yes really, yeah. um, unfortunately all the time <laughs> every day um so what do we talk about um the opening uh the movie opens with with a, a black teenager walking down a street he's wearing a hoodie he's going to get some food we know it's trayvon martin uh, talk about why you start there um, it was the beginning of Isabel's kind of intellectual journey into the writing of the book for her, my conversations with her. It was the verdict around that case mm-hmm. that really, you know, sparked her imagination as to what do we call this thing that has happened and is race mm-hmm. too small a term. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to begin at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You did have the character that says, why is a, why is a Hispanic man stalking a black man in a white neighborhood. I thought that was one. I, I actually hadn't thought of it quite that way, which was interesting. But then you travel to Germany and India, and as she does to uh, research the book, um, there's a Nazi book burning scene you filmed on site in Berlin. I have been there at a place that was one of the most famous. It happened almost a century ago. Um, talk about recreating history on the same ground. Um, and what was that like? Sure. I will just say that the line in the film is, um, why does a, a, a Latino man stalk a, ba- stalk a black boy to yeah. protect an all-white community? I think it's really important to always uh, assert that Trayvon Martin was a teenager. He was a That's child. That's correct. That's correct. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you for that. Um, so yes, incredible to shoot in the real location. I had the privilege of doing that when I did the bridge, cro- bridge crossing in Selma mm-hmm. in Lawrence County, mm-hmm. Alabama for that film. And there's something uh, electric uh, mm-hmm. to be in the real place. It, 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 is, it feels like an act of service. It feels like a, a, uh, a deep bow to what has taken place in, in, in the place where your, your feet are placed. Mm-hmm. And um, I... Uh, along with my producing partner, Paul Garns, we really pursued being in the actual square known as Bibelplatz now mm-hmm. on top of the monument known as the Empty Library mm-hmm. um, so that we could actually put that bonfire of where the books were burned in this very famous book burning um, right on top of that and really recreate, according to historical photos, the entry point of the Nazi soldiers, mm-hmm. where the faculty was, because a, a lot of this was all, uh, this was a student book burning. Mm-hmm. And these were teachers and librarians facilitating the removal of the books. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was an extraordinary experience to work hand in hand with the city of Berlin to pull that off uh, in one night. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was was one of the moments in the filmmaking that, 
um, is impossible to shake just as a as a director. Mm-hmm. Well, history doesn't feel quite so distant. Books are being banned in the U.S., and in 2022, even cast disappeared from a public library in Texas. Was it something you thought and talked about on the set? Yes, of course. That was yeah. one of the reasons why it, it felt so important to to render mm-hmm. and to actually be in the real place and to make mm-hmm. sure that that moment had, um, you know, a, a very prominent place within the film. Mm-hmm. And when you, you, you also worked with non-actors in the film. In one scene set in India, a Dalit man gets uh, into a sewer filled with excrement to clean it. You cast a Dalit man who had done that job. Talk about doing that. That, that was particularly disturbing on lots of levels, not just because it was gross, but it was that someone does this. Uh, well, this is uh, the, the task that is uh, required that is a part of the caste system. Um, mm-hmm. in, in India, there is a caste that specifically um, mm-hmm. uh, is, is relegated to manual scavenging. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's beyond gross. It's, it's mm-hmm. inhumane. It's barbaric. It's horrendous. Mm-hmm. It's horrific. And it is something that we are not aware of. So I mm-hmm. felt like it was important that when we talk about caste, we take it out of the abstract. We mm-hmm. take um, the, the, the performance of that task at that one is relegated to for scraps of food and a few pennies in order to just exist. We take that seriously. We bear witness to it. And we understand that this is a contemporary issue, modern happening right now. Mm-hmm. And that this isn't something in feudal India. And this isn't something that we should turn our heads from. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask people, I invite people who look at it and, and think that it's, it's gross to think, well, what can you do about it? Right. And is there, is there anything? I kept thinking that. Yeah. I, I kept thinking that. Well, talk about using those actors for that scene. Um, why did you think that was important to cast a Dalit man to do that? Well, they're not actors. They're real. They're 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 Dalit men who are actual manual scavengers. Mm-hmm. And so they. Um, Why well, was it important? Every Dalit person in the film, every Dalit character portrayed, is played by a Dalit person. Mm-hmm. I just personally uh, feel like representation is important. And why would you mm-hmm. cast an upper caste person mm-hmm. to play a Dalit when you could actually just find a Dalit person to portray mm-hmm. themselves in their own history? So um, I, I would say that that's important not only in the Dalit community but. Um, in 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 all communities, the woman who plays the um, the Jewish German woman is a is a Jewish actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an element of connection, an mm-hmm. element of representation uh, that I think is something that's been missing from Hollywood generationally and institutionally. Mm-hmm. It's a small thing to be able to do, um, mm-hmm. but it's something that that I try to do um, as often as possible. So I want to talk about two more particular scenes, the middle passage, which was short and devastating, and the little boy in the pool, which has stayed with me a very long time. It was long and devastating and silent almost. Um, Explain your choices as a writer and director in those scenes. Um, Explain my choices. Um, I don't know if I, I... I don't know if I want to explain the choices. Uh, When I'm, I'm a black woman director rendering very you know, preliminary introductory images of the middle passage, which mm-hmm. is the portion of enslavement of African people that was mm-hmm. the transport from the continent to uh, wherever uh, they were being taken. And um, the horrors of that journey, which are often forgotten as we consider slavery and the survival that was required to make it through the most horrendous, horrific circumstances. An explanation of my choices would be a a very long spiritual conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and Albright, uh, this is a, a sequence where a young a young boy 
is um, marked uh, and pulled out of a group of boys because of the color of his skin. And I will allow people to watch the film and feel it as you did when you first watched Mm -hmm. without kind of hearing the blow by blow of how it was designed. But I think generally the sequence is one that um, touched people in the book. It's one of the famous kind of very Mm well-known stories in the book and um, is, is kind of the climax of the film and the way in which it, it, you know, all of the aspects of what um, the character has been writing and dealing with and grappling with culminate in the story of just a little boy. Mm-hmm. And that when we think about caste, we think about it writ large, it's this huge anthropological thesis, cultural mm-hmm. phenomenon, but ultimately the film asks you to consider it um, for the, the, the bruise that it leaves on the individual. Mm-hmm. And that is embodied in the story of Albright. We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing, and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just the flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech and also listen to their podcasts. I look at their newsletters and I really, really, really most of all like the articles which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. The book came out in 2020. The the movie was released in 2023, um, which is fast for Hollywood. And you've said it's intentional. You wanted to get this movie out before the 2024 
uh, election. And of now, of course, it feels very urgent right now. But can you talk about the urgency and why the understanding of the idea of caste is so politically necessary now? I think it's, I don't even know if it's politically necessary. I think it's it's necessary as human beings to give us a new language to just relate to one another. I mean, ultimately, mm-hmm. there'll be no success politically, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as far as organizing, as far as being, uh, having any consensus about where we want to go as a country if we don't even regard each other as human beings, if we don't mm-hmm. uh, humanize one another in our own struggles and challenges and triumphs. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, people are in their own corners and their own sides of the of the room, and uh, throwing darts at one another, and not listening, not trying to uh, even be in a space of engaging with one another. There's no need to even talk about agreeing. There's no need in talking about debates when everything's so polarized. But can we talk about civility? Mm-hmm. Can that be the I mean, the bar is low at this point. It very be civil to one another and regard the person across from you as a human being who deserves a baseline space of respect. Mm-hmm. And um, and that is, if anything, one of the major uh, points that the film uh, offers. Absolutely. No question. I, I interviewed uh, Isabel uh, days after the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol. So... Um, here we are three years later. Trump is the leading presidential candidate. Uh, what are the state of politics in the current election where democracy always seems to be on the ballot? It never isn't on the ballot. Um, the post-democracy um, dies in darkness, to me, has devolved into its – it dies in a full glare of light, actually. Um, I wonder if you think of – and you may not agree with me that 2024 is a caste election and how the idea guides us on how to address Trump. You're talking about civility. But it's quite difficult. Even now as we talk, he's in court screaming at the jury, uh, as is his lawyer, in some really unfortunate ways. Um, talk a little bit about what this election means in that regard or how to address it in this context. Well, I think I think we all know and all of your listeners know what it means and what's at stake. I think the question about how to address it is one that means that, you know, is is very steeped in the idea of fatigue, apathy, and what we are allowing to have happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are allowing bad behavior to go unchallenged and unaddressed and unreported. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at a place where, you know, in the in the last election uh, year uh, when Trump was on the ballot, that every single outrageous thing he said was reported. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are not completely tuned in, leaning in and looking for it, you would not hear the violent rhetoric the mm-hmm. very intentional planning, the instruction and guidance that he is giving to um, his supporters, the strategy that he is laying out, what he says he intends to do. Mm-hmm. None of that is, 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 I don't see it at the top of the evening news. If you still watch the evening news, I do. Mm-hmm. I don't see, as, I see it as the headline on my paper. I don't see tweets and breaking news alerts about, about this in the way that we did. Um, we have uh, become numb to it. And Mm -hmm. that is, um, there's precedent for that. Mm -hmm. There's precedent for the madman screams so often and so loudly Mm -hmm. that you start not to even hear it. But it doesn't mean that the threats are not real. And so my answer to what do we do? do? Demand. Demand attention on it. Lean in. Listen. Raise our hands. Amplify. Use your voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is... uh, uh, defend yourselves, yeah. and uh, and one of the ways to do that is to make sure that that this uh, behavior is not being ignored. 
So one of the conversations, in fact, in the movie is how Germans uh, deal with their Nazi past compared to the way the U.S. addresses the history of slavery. Obviously, it's just been in the news with Nikki Haley and others talking about it. Um, your characters talk about how the swastika is banned in Germany, but the Confederate flag was incorporated into Mississippi's state flag. It was removed from the flag in 2020, but still, I, I've had a lot of conversations lately about memory. And and is there something broken in the American ability to remember no, I, I think for something to be, be broken, it it assumes it ever existed. Mm -hmm. uh, from my point of view, uh, there has never been a time when the United States fully embraced the the breadth and scope of its uh, injury to mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. and um, and so I, I don't think it's broken. I feel it's functioning exactly the way it was designed to function. Mm -hmm. And. Could when you say that, what do you mean by designed? How do you imagine it was designed to function? Well, a constant level of forgetfulness. Well, we we live within a caste system where mm -hmm. it goes beyond forgetfulness. When you, mm -hmm. when I am speaking from the perspective of a group of people who um, can't even walk down the street at night with your choice of clothing and feel mm -hmm. safe, right? Uh, do not feel uh, growing up feeling that if there was anything going on that required protection, the thing to do is not call the police. Yeah. So this goes far beyond a forgetfulness. This goes into a, a systemic DNA of our country mm -hmm. um, that uh, is designed, truly systems and structures designed to keep a certain kind of person in one place so that another kind of person can prevail, can mm -hmm. be can live in privilege, can, uh, can, can triumph, can mm -hmm. succeed, mm -hmm. can do all of those things that are not predicated on worthiness, uh, anything that's earned, but only because someone else does not have it. And we exactly. will make it so that this other person does not have it. That is cast. That is what uh, her book is about. Mm -hmm. That is what the film is about. Uh, and that is what this uh, this time in our country, as we consider um, who will lead us in the future, is truly about. And so the hope is that we talk about it more than we are. Right. So one of the things you did, actually, there's two scenes, the mother and the son-in-law talking about it explicitly. Um, when she's saying he should have been quiet, the mother said that, or he should have not. How, why did he react like that? And um, this is Trayvon Martin. Um, but but sometimes moralizing and remembering doesn't seem to mean much, uh, enough. I'm sure you're following the recent protests in Germany against the far-right alternative German party, a party that's discussed transporting migrants en masse out of Germany. They've been compared to the Nazis. Um, so these ideas of caste still break through. Um, do you? This system seems not to be not to be breakable in a lot of ways. It continues to reassert itself. Can you talk about that idea of how it how it stays in place? Because breaking it seems to be the harder, the, the more difficult part. Yeah, I mean, I think I think. Uh, let me say this: I am a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And there's a very brilliant woman named Isabel Wilkerson who's written a whole book about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I'll say is that obviously, you know, having made 13th and Selma and when they see us and this mm -hmm. film origin, that systems of oppression are durable. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's why they work. Mm -hmm. And that it requires resistance and fortitude and courage and community uh, to survive, not break. I think we come from a different perspective, you know, when, we, when mm -hmm. we're talking about how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, it. It is about, can you make it through to the other side of this? 
mm-hmm. and the groups of marginalized people, oppressed people that I focus on and and uh, and feel alignment with. Uh, the, the the question is first survival. Can you get home at night mm-hmm. with the hood on? You know, can you call the police if something happens and survive that? Can you even do it? Can you can you can you make it through? this on the other side so then you can dream of resistance and building a new world right so there there are there are different levels of engagement Mm -hmm. and i think that um people should be invited to interrogate these things from where they are and the assumption that we're all in the same place about it is one of the you know one of the things we also have to break but yes the durability of these structures and systems is is uh at the forefront of 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 why they are successful mm-hmm. and um and there's no easy answer uh to come to on this podcast but but hopefully the thought is um let's keep thinking about it and talking about it do do you worry that right now DEI programs diversity equity inclusion programs are under deep attack um I just spoke to Judy Woodruff about a Pew poll that reported 72% of Republicans consider Democrats to be immoral and 63% of Democrats, for example, consider Republicans to be immoral. Does that make it um, – I, I just – it seems like it's it, it's going backwards in that regard in terms of the, of the forces of retrograde. It feels like you're in a – like if you had to use a movie metaphor, I guess Star Wars and the Death Star's back essentially. Yes, I think that's one of the things that that um, we're trying to uh, present in origin, that this is a personal, like girls in the schoolyard when I was young, uh, mm-hmm. we would say, it sounds like a personal problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. This mm-hmm. is a personal problem. The, the, the idea that we um, r- resist talking to people who we... Uh, like I said before, don't agree with 60% feels this way. 60% feels that way. Mm-hmm. Unless these, unless that 60% or some fraction of them decides that they will talk to and try to be civil to and try to find some common ground with the other side, they, there will never be a middle. Right. And the middle does not mean a compromise. The middle mm-hmm. simply means we all live in this house mm-hmm. and we're either going to slam doors and stomp around, ignore each other and be, um, horrible to one another, or we're going to find a way to coexist. Right. And right now, that coexistence and the steps towards that does not seem that I, yeah. I don't. Immoral, I don't it. immoral stops me cold. That's a different word. But my next question is not from me. It's from someone I think you'll recognize. I have. I always have someone call in and ask a question. Let's play that. Hey, hey, this is Baratunde Thurston, host of America Outdoors on PBS, the How to Citizen podcast, and a writer at Puck. And my real question is, what's up, Ava? (laughs) How are you looking so good when the world is looking so bad? I mean, I just don't understand how you're keeping it together so much as things fall apart. Legitimately, I want to congratulate you on all your work, especially Origin, and thank you for bringing these stories to light and to life. And I want to ask you about your belief and your faith in the human capacity to change. Because so many of the stories you're telling, especially this latest set of stories in origin, are about revealing some deep intransigence in the human condition, commitments to discrimination, to systems of hierarchy and unfairness. And as you wrestle with these and dive into these ideas, where do you stand on our capacity to not just recognize these systems, but to alter them for the better? 
Good question. Ah, oh, such a good, such a good guy. I always enjoy it when our paths cross. Yeah. So, answer. <laughs> um, your interviews are very demanding. Talk about this. Tell me this. Answer this. I'm, I'm like, sorry. Sorry. What do you want? Some light Hollywood? I don't hey, want light Hollywood. Are you dating? What are you wearing? No, no I don't want light Hollywood. But uh, yeah, there's a tone. Sorry. There's a tone. Um, let me say. Um, yeah, I believe. I believe in change. I believe um, uh, Octavia Butler, the great writer and futurist, uh, talked about all that you touch changes you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that is a daily process. That is an ongoing uh, engagement, uh, holding hands with the world and to think that that change is not possible, to think that uh, you are not changed by what you encounter, uh, what you say, what you do, what is said and done to you is, uh, I think, a pedestrian way to think about life. So for me, um, absolutely, not only is change possible, it's inevitable and it's happening mm-hmm. at every moment. Yeah, you're much more hopeful than I think either Baratunde or I are. But let's talk, uh, speaking about about money, uh, you started this project with Netflix, but you pulled out of the deal and in the end got funding from a bunch of foundations, primarily the Ford Foundation. Uh, you also, I, when at the end, I hadn't realized this, have three uh, wealthy tech-centric investors, Anne Wojcicki, Melinda Gates, and Lorraine uh, Powell Jobs. Um, Jobs, who's been making a series of media investments, told the Washington Post that her foundation will use a dashboard of metrics to evaluate origin success. Can you talk a little bit about the decision and how it impacted your process? Um, The decision was uh, to fund the picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, streamers and studios are not interested in making films about cast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're yeah. not interested in making films about social justice, period, really. Mm-hmm. And so instead of banging our head against a wall or taking six to seven years to go around to each place three and four times, we pivoted from that and, and started to think about who would be interested in making a film about, about these issues and uh, where the metrics uh, of success are predicated on social impact and reach as opposed to um, the usual corporate interest of um, the the standard return. Um, mm-hmm. In this, the, the the venture began as we want to put these ideas into the world in the same way that we would do in funding a documentary or funding mm-hmm. a nonprofit organization. And so let's buy a movie that uh, shares ideas that we feel are important. Mm-hmm. And so that that was the proposition, and that was uh, that's what we did. Is that a sustainable way to do this? Um, it, it, does it work for you? Do you think it's it's something you can do for a while? I'm not sure if it's sustainable, but we're going to try to find out. You know, I mean, it, this is a case study, this film to to see and understand, could the film be made? Could it even be made? That is a triumph in and of itself, that without a studio, um, on a film that shot in 37 days on three continents about this subject matter with the kind of epic scale of some of our sequences and the intimacy of some of our sequences, could it actually get in the can? Mm-hmm. And then could it could it work? Would it make it into the film festivals, the top festivals? It did. Would it be embraced by audience and audiences and critics? It has been. Um, and, you know, how is it doing at the box office? Doing quite well, expanding from 120 screens this mm-hmm. last weekend to 650 this weekend um, with very little marketing, almost none. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that uh, we can incubate this idea and really work on issues of sustainability is is where we are now, but it's a worthy endeavor and one that I'm enjoying exploring. 
Um, has has not having a big studio behind you impacted the rollout? I know you after screenings, you you ask audience questions about their impressions of film, as you noted. Uh, how how are you feeling the impact of those films in those theaters? Is there a different way to roll out a film? Rather yeah, than a big diff- studio way. Many different ways. Big studios have way more money to put mm-hmm. muscle behind uh, advertising to be able to buy your attention in different ways that you may be aware of or may not even be aware of. Mm-hmm. None of that exists here. So we're in the midst of a very gorgeous grassroots effort. I was on a call last night with uh, over a thousand black women leaders around the mm-hmm. country who, and when I say leaders in their communities, in their mm-hmm. schools, uh, in, in their hospitals who gathered uh, for the third time in, a, in as many weeks to talk about group mm-hmm. sales, to talk about students for uh, tickets mm-hmm. for students. And so these are things that um, our studio partners don't have to do, but also should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so in putting together a model, it's looking at not only these grassroots efforts um, from a space of lack, but from mm-hmm. a space of abundance and what real engagement with the community offers. Mm-hmm. And especially within the black community, it's something that has just brought so much joy. So when you're doing this, obviously, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, I find it fascinating what you're doing here. Uh, but we're, we're speaking days after the Oscar nominations are announced. I personally think the Oscars are, are irrelevant, but um, it did not receive nods. Does that matter anymore to you? I'm not sure they matter at all, but there is an element of marketing, I guess. Um, did you have a reaction? I was sort of shocked uh, on a lot of the choices, but that happens every year, it feels like, and, and we all sort of have an idea of why. But what was your reaction? Well, um, they amplify films, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the films that got nominations get a new life at the box office. People mm-hmm. raise their heads and say, wait a minute, maybe I should see that now. Mm-hmm. So having been an Academy Award nominee in the past, I certainly know the beautiful feeling that it invokes and also the light that shines on the performance, the film, the craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Those are all welcome things, especially mm-hmm. when you are working to release a picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they the end-all, be-all of the filmmaking experience? Uh, luckily, I have been in a place uh, with a film, I'll, I'll speak to Selma, mm-hmm. where... I know the ongoing ripple effect of that film. There's no place that I can go around the world where someone doesn't come up to me and talk to me about Selma, uh, mm-hmm. about 13. Uh, and these are films that um, that exist outside of that, of that award structure. So yeah, when you get one, it puts more light on you. Mm-hmm. When you don't have it, you find other light. Mm-hmm. And so that that's really, um, you know, we join a bunch of films. I mean, there's, there are so many beautiful films this year. Mm-hmm. Only a few can, can get that light from that body. Mm-hmm. I think the question is, then what do you do? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing. And it's been, it's been a great ride. Do you have any thoughts why it didn't? Uh, I was I was surprised. Your movie particularly. Barbie, I get it. I get it. And I, I still liked it. But it, it, it's, do you have any thoughts of why it didn't? Oh, I haven't given it much thought. Okay. All right. Uh, not okay. At all. Uh, no. Not at all. Um, not, not a type of mind. Not yeah, a type okay. of mind. All yeah. right. Okay. I'll, I'll say that. Um, there's a, there's a, the end of the movie, there, there's an old trope that history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. Um, um, your movie is not full of rancor, but solutions. So let me end with this clip and then I'd like you to talk about this because one of the things that was, um, moving about it was the 
leaning into hope, you know, leaning into the idea of hope or not blame, uh, et cetera. So let's play this last uh, clip, and then I'd love you to talk about this metaphor. We're all like homeowners who've inherited a house on a piece of land that's beautiful on the outside, but the soil is unstable. People say, I had nothing to do with how this all started. I never owned slaves. I didn't mistreat untouchables. I didn't gas Jews. And yes, not one of us was around when this house was built. But here we are. So here we are. Um, this is the metaphor that Wilkerson uses in a book. And as you say in the film, uh, any more deterioration is on our watch. Um, can you, is this... Uh, I'd love you to explain this as your call to action and how do we tend this house together? There's a lot of cracks. Well, I would disagree with you in that the film is not um, offering solutions. The film. No, it is. I know I say it is. It is offering solutions. Uh, well, not in my point of view as the author. Okay. All right. You tell me. Um, I'll share if I may answer. Yes, please. Um, it's asking questions and ask, asking each person who considers the work and is inside of the story and watches the story to answer for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I can't really sit here and, and give an answer to such a huge question like that. Um, mm -hmm. The film is offered as a question. Uh, for one, for everyone to answer for themselves, and those answers are 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 going to be the ones that you find based on your own individual memory, your own family leg legacy, your own education from schools, the education that you reach for outside of what was taught to you, who you listen to, who you don't listen to, who you allow to be in your personal circle what friends you have, looking around and seeing who are those people, are they all like you? I mean, this is this is too complex for me as a filmmaker to say this is the answer to all of the issues. Mm -hmm. I will say that the film was made as a big hunking question, and that is what I got from the book. I got her asking, explain, you know, it, trying to pose this question in so many different ways, a consideration mm -hmm. uh, and an acknowledgement of the fact that caste exists and how does it exist for you and how will you... Um, how will you prevail within a system uh, in which caste is inherent in a society where it's everywhere? Um, mm -hmm. This won't be solved in our lifetimes, but mm -hmm. are there steps that we can take to um, to smooth the path for the people who come after us? And it's not going to come from ignoring it. It's not going to come from you watch Fox and I watch MSNBC and never we shall never meet in the middle or we shall never have a civil conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the goal is to try to get past that to answers that we come up with together. And I, when I say solutions, I mean, it, it, it left me with hope, which I don't get from a lot of movies these days. I'll be honest. You know what I mean? Like that there are, maybe a map is more uh, the way I think of it. It's sort of a map of which way to go. And that metaphor is a particularly strong one. I happen to like houses. I think about houses a lot and where I'm living. Uh, you are an incredibly gifted filmmaker and you've done a beautiful job here. And I truly, I really appreciate it. On with Kara Swisher is produced by Naima Raza, Christian Castro Rossell, Kateri Yokum, Megan Cunane, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Mary Mathis, Kate Gallagher, and Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan, and our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're not following the show, go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher, and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. You can subscribe to the magazine at nymag.com slash pod. We'll be back on Monday with more. 